Paracast, with your hosts Gene Steinberg and David Bietti. You know, a lot of people say we spend too much time talking about UFOs. I guess because we were both exposed to the subject very early on. Yeah. But it's also true that the UFO field, the more and more we examine it, the more we get a little discouraged about the state of the investigation. Like, I have been in and out of the UFO field a number of times where I get heavily immersed in it. And then after a while, I say, you know what? This is enough for right now. I'm going to lay off for a couple of years. And I get back in it again, and I see that not much has changed. So in 2006 and 2007, what has changed? Well, we have more players. We have more agendas. We have more confusion than ever before. Mm -hmm. And so the core reality behind UFOs has become more and more difficult to find. Well, it's like anything else. With the advent of the Internet, we have an easier way to disseminate lots of information, which means we have lots of stuff floating around, which means that we have a lot of crap floating around. So basically, it's a signal-to-noise issue the way it always was, but at this point, if you have an opinion, you have a way to put it out there. And what I think we've seen, Gene, on the show is that lots of people have opinions, lots of people have agendas, Lots of people are using this to somehow make a living. You and I, of course, not being part of that group. (laughs) (laughs) I have nothing against making a living, by the way. I mean, if you want to be a full-time UFO investigator and you make money from doing lectures and Uh you make money from writing books, that's okay. You know, this is cool. But will you sacrifice your principles to make that money? Well, and that's and, where things get difficult. Yeah. Yeah. Or are you actually seeking truth or are you looking to protect a point of view? Those are those are two very different things. Of course, outside of all of this, it's true that for hundreds of years, places have been haunted. There Indeed. Have been what a segue. Is, well, I'm just saying it. This is another area that's always fascinated me because there have been so many anecdotal reports of people seeing things, hearing things, interacting with things, it's kind of hard to ignore this. So you've brought us a real ghost investigator from your area. Absolutely. And I I live in the Hudson Valley. And for some strange reason, there are so many reports in this area of haunted homes, just tons of homes, medical institutions, hospitals, cemeteries, (laughs) the place you expect there to be hauntings. The Hudson Valley uh, specifically has a very, very high level of this kind of activity. And um, I had bought a book recently by uh, this author and ghost investigator, Linda Zimmerman, who seemed to have a lot of experience documenting all sorts of strange occurrences in the area that I live. And I thought, you know what? I think she'd make a really good guess. And we'll have Linda Zimmerman joining us next on the Paracast. I have a feeling we're not in Kansas anymore. I think most of you know that I love radio, and so I decide to look for the ultimate receiver for AM reception because I want outstanding AM reception, day and night, especially night where it gets difficult. So I've discovered that C-Crane CC Radio Plus has earned the reputation of having the best AM reception, which is exactly what C-Crane intended when they designed this gem of a radio. Along with its legendary AM reception, it also has excellent FM reception, a weather band, TV audio, and the ability to run on batteries for, and listen to this, 250 hours. 
So whether you use it as your bedside radio in your kitchen or at work, the CC Radio Plus will give you the pleasure of clear AM reception. The radio is designed for the clarity of the human voice and the benefits of useful features like five memory buttons per band. They work just like memory buttons in your car, a sleep timer, an alarm clock so you can get up at the right time, and a weather alert that now works as an all-hazards alarm. You know what I want you to do? I want you to buy that radio, but also support this show by visiting our site, theparacast.com. That's theparacast.com right now. Click on the C-Crane Sponsor button to order the CC Radio Plus for $164.95, and that includes free ground shipping and a free C-Crane catalog. Place your order today. You've entered another dimension. You've entered the Paracast. So, Linda, how did you become a ghost investigator? Well, uh, it wasn't anything I had uh, gone to school for. I was—I uh, actually began my career as a research chemist, and I always enjoyed writing, so I started writing about uh, local history, uh, local for me being Rockland County, New York. And I was giving a series of lectures on local history. I was talking about some of the Indian legends, colonial legends, and people started asking about ghost stories. And at the tw- at the time, my repertoire of ghost stories included one, one story that I was familiar with. So I told it, but a couple of days later, I got a call, are you the ghost lady? And I said, no, I'm, I'm giving a series of lectures on history. And they said, well, we'd like to hear more ghost stories. And for some reason, I guess word just spread on the ghost on the ghost vine, excuse me, the grapevine, <laughs> and uh, that was, that was totally unintentional. And people just started calling and inviting me to their haunted houses, restaurants, businesses. And I started investigating. And ten years later, here I am with a couple of hundred cases under my belt. You're in the Faracast with Gene Steinberg and David Viedney. We're talking to ghost investigator. Linda Zimmerman. So when you go out to investigate a haunting report of ghosts, how do you equip yourselves? How does one actually investigate scientifically this sort of thing? Uh, Basic things like cameras and tape recorders, um, digital when you can get them. EMF meters, which are electromagnetic field meters, uh, different digital thermometers. Uh, we, we, we do film and, and photograph a lot in infrared, uh, since you can do that in total darkness and it seems to be a lot more sensitive. If we had the money, we would love to get a FLIR camera, one of those forward-looking infrared cameras, but they're still a little pricey. That, that will give you uh, thermal images. So there are a lot of scientific equi- uh, pieces of equipment, ion counters, things like that. Basically, I think 
some of the best equipment is, you know, your your sight, your uh, hearing, your uh, your your own sensitivity, and you know, to be able to observe what's going on around you and know what is valid and what is not. But of course, photographs and and recordings are certainly uh, bolster that evidence. So that takes us to step number two or three, however you want to figure it. So armed with all this equipment, what things have you found out? Let's get started with the results. Well, recently, um, I think I took the best photo I have in 10 years. Um, I'm, I always go in skeptical, and I've taken thousands of photos over the years, and I've gotten streaks of light and and different misty shapes, which, you know, you, you're always looking at it and you're saying, I think it's something paranormal, but you can never be sure. But recently, in a house, I saw a dark shadow moving, and I snapped some pictures in infrared and got a very clear, dark human form in front of some curtains. And there's absolutely no way I can uh, describe this as being anything other than paranormal. So that's probably the best one, and that's one of my most recent cases. I was just curious before you move on uh, about that. Were you able to capture multiple contiguous frames of this thing in different positions? No, I wasn't. I just got the one single photo However, it was not there in the photo before, and a few seconds later, it was it it wasn't there either. So I only had it in this one location, but I did physically see it before I photographed it. Mm-hmm. And actually, the reason I was investigating this house is because the owner was complaining of seeing a dark figure and having other haunted activity taking place as well. Uh, I was only able to capture that one still photo. I took a series of photos and several seconds apart and I did not see it until maybe the, I think it was the second or third photo into the series and then a few seconds later I took another photo and it was gone. But I did actually physically see this dark shape moving. It was moving fairly quickly. And the reason I was actually there to investigate in the first place is because that was one of the symptoms of this particular haunting. The owner was seeing a dark figure appearing throughout the house. Obviously, the skeptics will say at this point, well, some kids, some teenagers are producing these effects. They're wearing sheets or something, or they're hiding behind curtains. And what do you say about that? Well, I can say is um, I would swear in a court of law that uh, I was the only person in that room. I was there with the owner. We had been through the entire house. Uh, no one else was there. I, I, I suppose she could have been playing a trick on me, but as I said, I was the only one in the room, and there's no way anyone could have gotten in or out uh, at that particular time. So I get questioned all the time about you know possibly faking these things, and all I can say is I, I stand on my credibility, and if I think, think something is suspicious, I don't write about it, and I don't pursue the investigation any further. Now, Linda, you described this as a dark form, and one thing that seems to be a common element in haunting or ghost stories is that we either hear about lighter forms, mist-like forms, or these shadow people, these shadowy forms. My, my question for you about this is, 
Is there some kind of um, a specific thing that happens in terms of, for example, these dark shadow forms? Very often they're associated with negative energies or, or evil beings. Is that something you have found, or is there any kind of a correlation there? That's a good point. I have been asked that on a couple of occasions, so I've actually you know, looked at the cases I've dealt with, and in mm-hmm. this particular case of the, of the dark figure I photographed, it is a very negative, dare I even say evil haunting. It's, it's just plain nasty. And the dark shapes, the really solid ones, do seem to be uh, connected with the more negative hauntings. So I, I wish I could tell you something definitive, but at right. least in my experience and from what I have heard from others, I don't, you know, if it seems to be a fairly benign haunting, the, the apparitions are usually described as being light or transparent or wispy. And any time I've, you know, dealt with the really dark, solid ones, it seems to be uh, on the negative side. So there, there, I would say there is some type of correlation there, but I, I couldn't swear to it in every, every case. Okay, a negative haunting, what do they do? What kind of acts are performed by these dark apparitions as part of a negative haunting? In this particular case, uh, the woman was getting pushed down the stairs, feelings of negativity, of fear, things that just seemed designed to threaten and scare her. And the other case where there were these darker shadow beings was in an old asylum where many negative things uh, have taken place. So a lot of people describe to me their particular haunting is, oh, I think it's a happy ghost. It really doesn't bother me. So that I would put in a more... that I think any haunting is positive, but that I would put in at least in the benign category. But the people who tell me they're terrified, there's slamming noises, there's physical contact um, in a harmful way, those I would put into the negative category. You're in the Paracast with Gene Steinberg and David Biedney. You never know what's going to happen next. You're in the Paracast with Gene Steinberg and David Bietney, and we're talking to ghost hunter Linda Zimmerman. We have a link to her website on our site, thepowercast.com. If you want to get in touch with us, send your messages to news at thepowercast.com. You can also make comments of anywhere from like 30 to 90 seconds about the show. Send them as an MP3 file, also the news at thepowercast.com, or visit our forums at thepowercast.com. And David was about to ask a question. Yeah, you know, Linda, what you're describing there is really interesting in that it seems that there is some kind of an interest on the part of these entities, at least the dark ones, to elicit a fear response from from people. I wonder what your thoughts are about the potential of these things actually getting some kind of a what's the term I need here? Nourishment from this kind of energy this negative energy interaction? Possibly, I think they might feed off of that type of uh, reaction. Uh, somebody once said that a haunting is all about the, pe- the living people involved, and I think to some extent that's correct because I find that the type of people who are involved in these negative hauntings are very emotional. They, they do get very fearful. They create that energy that just seems to... 
I don't want to say bring it on or invite it, but it, the negative energies do seem to target that kind of person. And there's another case where there's a, a negative haunting. The wife and child are very much affected and very emotional. The husband doesn't feel a thing and goes about his business and says, I, I don't know about anything going on. So I don't think, I don't know if it's just a matter of his sensitivity, but maybe they don't bother with him because they know he's not going to be affected and generate that kind of fear that they're looking for. What about the theory then that some of these apparitions might be actual materializations of psychological projections from people that are undergoing sort of intense emotional duress or stress? That it's a pro product of a creation of their own mind? Yeah. In a, a sense? A, um, well, an actual physical a, manifestation, not just like something they're imagining. Yeah, that other people can also perceive and see as well. That is a possibility. Uh, in mm -hmm. some cases, in some isolated cases, however, a lot of these cases, even when the, the primary witness is not present, um, you get other people seeing and experiencing the same thing, and perhaps over decades. So uh, there are there are some hauntings where clearly it's not one individual, you know, at the core of it. But then again, you you know, that theory I think is valid in some cases where. Uh, where, wherever that person is, it's, it, they seem to be generating some kind of paranormal symptoms of, of a haunting. So I think I think that is a valid point. I'm thinking of one woman in particular. I I labeled her the ghost magnet because wherever she seems to go, um, there seem to be ghosts. So they seem to be drawn to her, or perhaps it's because she is generating them herself. That's a valid point. Well, that of course breeds two pictures of the same thing. Thing, which is, is the person who seems to bring about this kind of phenomena, are they generating it themselves or are they just communicating with some other place? Right. I, I definitely think it depends upon the case. I think in some, as I said, in some instances, I think it has, you know, it is clearly a resident haunting as, you know, sometimes over the course of 200 years, you'll have 50 different witnesses seeing the same thing. So you can't have just one oh, person generating it. <laughs> right. Or right. maybe. But, but then, <laughs> right. But then in other cases, you know, if it's one person experiencing everything or, you know, within a family group, uh, and you see the, these type of people, they are so connected to this or at least absorbed by it, um, I wouldn't doubt that they're putting their psychic or spiritual energy behind a lot of what's going on. Linda, most of the books have, that you've written about this phenomenon sort of center on the New York, New Jersey, Connecticut area. I'm curious about why it is that this area seems to have so much activity, or is it just that you live here so you have easier access to these locales for investigating personally? Well, initially, I did think just because I was in the area, I was getting the local stories, but the, you know, I've been doing this for about 10 years now, and it amazes me the number of hauntings in this area. I was just in a small town last night in the Hudson Valley, and half a dozen people came up to me who live in town with stories, either about their own house or other houses, and the, it's the concentration of the hauntings which, which amazes me. But then again, look at the length of habitation in this in this Hudson Valley area. You know, it, it goes back to the Europeans to the 1600s, and then, of course, the American Indians for hundreds, if not thousands of years before that. So I think the chances of there being hauntings, you know, hundreds 
hundreds of years of, of habitation as opposed to, oh, I don't want to pick on any Midwestern state, but let's say Nebraska, you know, some <laughs> small town that, you know, has maybe had a couple of hundred residents for 80 years. You know, the the statistics are certainly going to favor the more, you know, concentrated uh, population in, in this area. And there's been a lot of violence, a lot of tragedy, um, you know, a lot of wars, conflict. So that, that certainly generates these type of things as well. You know, as you said that, it just occurred to me that another set of places that fulfill both of those criteria would be the Middle East. I mean, by that standard, Jerusalem should probably be the most haunted place on the earth. Ghost I, I Central? And, well, I just, and it, it just, may be. It, it may be. It just occurred to me. You know, along those lines, Linda, something I, I was really meaning to ask you about. In your research, have you heard any kind of stories or any kind of sort of quiet whisperings about what I'm going to guess is going to end up being one of the most haunted places in the United States, that, that specifically being Ground Zero down in lower Manhattan, where you know such a huge amount of death happens so quickly and so violently. Um, have you heard any kind of information or anecdotal evidence about that yet? I've had a lot of people send me photographs. Some of them, I think, maybe just be light reflection, but some of them are questionable, you know, that uh, I can't quite explain it. Uh, I haven't directly heard from, say, any workers down there. Mm -hmm. But clearly, if sudden tragic death is one of the ingredients to a haunting, then this would certainly could certainly be considered, you know, a, a prime haunting spot. One way I look at it, however, is if these spirits look for acknowledgement or recognition, you know, to try to ease whatever is keeping them trapped there. So much attention, so much prayer and compassion has been focused on this spot. I feel better thinking that hopefully so much emotion has been poured into this place that it will loosen the haunting aspects, if you want to say it that way, and mitigate the tragedy, and hopefully these, these souls will be able to move on. Fate Magazine provides true reports of the strange and unknown. Keep up with the latest on angels and miracles, psychic phenomena, ghosts, UFOs, life after death, and much, much more. To receive your free issue of Fate Magazine, call now at 1-800-728-2730 or visit their website at www.fatemag.com. That's 1-800-728-2730. 2730 or www.fatemag.com. What are you waiting for? Your fate awaits. You're in the Paracast with Gene Steinberg and David Biedney. You never know what's going to happen next. I'm going to ask you about your most frightening ghost encounter in a moment, but I have to tell our listeners, you're in the Paracast with Gene Steinberg and David Bietany. We're talking to Linda Zimmerman, a ghost hunter, and she has a site called ghostinvestigator.com, which is linked at theparacast.com. If you have a comment or a question, send it to news at theparacast.com. You can send an email or even a short recorded message of 30 to 90 seconds in MP3 format, or check out our spirited message boards at theparacast.com. So let me ask you, Linda, now that we we have created the demand for the question. What do you think is the most frightening ghost encounter that you have ever faced yourself? 
Well, I will have no hesitation in telling you that because it's one of my more recent ones. It took place in July. I, no, actually, I returned in July from an investigation a couple of months earlier at the Rolling Hills Asylum in Bethany, New York. It's a, it's a huge rambling place, and obviously a lot of tragedies had occurred there, a lot of deaths. And it's a very haunted location, but during the initial part of the investigation, even though we were seeing things move and hearing sounds. Honestly, I wasn't frightened. I was I was fascinated. You know, I'm generally more curious than scared. So I was of the mindset that this was a great intellectual adventure I was on. So, uh, you know, I didn't go in there very fearful. However, uh, we were walking down this one corridor. I was with a friend of mine, Mike, who's actually a police detective who goes along on a lot of these investigations, and his brother were there. We were walking down this one dark corridor, and in the darkness I didn't realize I had gotten ahead of them by about 10, 15 feet. So I was alone walking, you know, in that one section, and there was an open doorway, and when I crossed in front of the open doorway, I felt something just rush out at me, and I felt personally threatened, and I felt threatened as a woman. And hmm. I generally try to do everything scientific and validate everything with my instruments, but let me tell you, this completely freaked me out. I was I was terrified, and in my mind, I felt I needed to get in the middle of Mike and his brother. I just felt if I got between two men, I might be shielded from whatever this was. In, in 10 years, this had never happened to me. So in my mind, I'm thinking I need to get in the middle of them. And just as I turn around to move back, Mike says, did you ever hear of that, that game monkey in the middle? And I'm like, why did you use that word? He said, I just feel something here is trying to manipulate us and move us into these positions. And I said, well, that's, that's exactly what happened. I got separated. I, as I said, I felt attacked. About an hour later, I met up with the woman who owns the place, uh, Lori Carlson, and I, I, just, I didn't say what happened. I just said, we had an experience on the second floor east wing. Could you tell me what happened there? Because they have other groups coming through. And she said, oh, that place. She said, we believe there's the spirits of two very angry men who hate women. And she said, a lot of women have complained about feeling threatened and attacked there. So you can add my name to the list. Um, I have no scientific proof of it, but I, I, I'm getting goosebumps now just even recalling it. It was a very personally traumatic experience for me. Did, did you feel this as any kind of a physical manifestation, Linda, or was it all sort of an emotional response? That's a good question. It, it seemed all wrapped up in the same package. It was just so overwhelming, so sudden. It was fear. It was, I didn't feel pushed or shoved, if mm -hmm. you mean that, but right. I did feel physically and emotionally threatened. It, it was terrifying. I felt like someone was trying to attack me, and it, it was just a horrible it was a horrible experience, and I had to get out of that wing, and it was interesting. The second I walked through the big steel double doors, the feeling was gone, like a switch was turned off, and I realized whatever it was could not get out of that wing. Hmm. So, And so it was, you know, I had been shaken by it. But once I physically removed myself from that wing, the feeling was gone. Looking further at that, are there any instances where 
it's not just a feeling of dread, but ghosts have done something pretty nasty, causing some kind of physical effect to somebody that's more than just a sensation. Yes. Just last week when I was giving a lecture on this experience, uh, there was a family who had been to Rolling Hills earlier this summer. And the father just—he was—they were just taking a tour. The father felt a strange sensation in his back, and they lifted up his shirt. He had scratch marks. And the daughter uh, near the electroshock area, which is another particularly nasty area, mm. felt a pain in her arm, and she rolled up her sleeve. She actually had a physical burn mark on her arm. Oh boy! So I think, oh. yes. Yeah, so you know, people all the time say, "Well, ghosts can't hurt you, can they?" And I say, yes, I, I believe they do. I think if you're very, very sensitive to it and you're particularly vulnerable and you get, you get in a situation where they are strong negative entities, I have seen cases where they can physically harm you. You know, a lot of people who listen to the show kind of think that maybe we dwell too much on the question of UFOs. But in places where UFOs are seen, people report other paranormal phenomena such as ghosts. So do you find or do you regard this as being some symptom of a relationship between the two and other paranormal manifestations? Um, the first time somebody asked me that, I was actually surprised by it because I, I, my immediate reaction was, you know, how could there be any relation between UFOs and ghosts? But actually, I have found that people who have witnessed UFOs also have had some kind of paranormal or ghostly activity. And there's also an area not too far from where I live in uh, Kent Cliff, which is uh, in New York State, where there are some old stone chambers. And initially they thought maybe they were colonial root cellars, but they were there long before the colonists were there. And there's a lot of paranormal activity associated with these chambers. People have seen apparitions uh, within the chambers or around them. And also there has been, in recent years, a lot of UFO activity in that area. And, you know, the lost time, um, you know, where people are driving by their their car suddenly dies and next thing they know it's two hours later um, actual alien sightings and they all seem to be connected around this area so whether it's some natural source of earth energy that is drawing paranormal activity as well as UFO activity I'm not sure but I have seen in some isolated cases some kind of connection are you familiar with the stone chambers no, but this sounds like the kind of place that I probably would want to visit, given that I also live in Rockland County. And, you know, that brings up a, an issue for me, Linda, in that I live in Nyack, New York, and uh, apparently this area has had a good amount of activity, including a really fascinating case that I had heard about before reading your book on Rockland Hauntings, but it's um, the, the case of this house here in Nyack on Levita Place. Could you tell us a little bit of, about this case? This is The Paracast, with your hosts, Gene Steinberg and David Bietney. You never know what's going to happen next.
I'll tell you what, before you do that, I have to remind everybody you're in the Paracast with Gene Steinberg and David Bietney. We're playing one of our games of cliffhanger here. Send your messages to us, comments, questions, or even an audio recording in MP3 format to news at theparacast.com, news at theparacast.com. And I will hold off on the adjectives and just say visit our message boards and decide for yourself (laughs) whether they are spirited or not, okay? Linda Zimmerman joins us. Go to ghostinvestigator.com to find out more about what she does. She is a ghost investigator. David asked a question about a place that he lives near, and that makes me especially curious, and I'm also very curious about Linda's answer. Well, uh, the story began back in, I believe, the 1960s when a woman bought an old Victorian house uh, near the Hudson River, and she and her children started experiencing you know, what we'd call ghostly phenomena, and they actually started witnessing two apparitions, which looked like uh, a man in colonial dress with powdered wig and all, and also a woman. And beds would shake and light fixtures would move and these apparitions would appear and objects would move. So all all the classic symptoms, but nothing harmful, nothing negative. And they just, you know, kind of learned to live with it. Well, when she went to try to sell the house a couple of decades later, she uh, told the prospective buyers that, oh, the, the house is haunted, but don't worry, they're very nice ghosts. Well, the couple said, no way do we want to live in a haunted house. So they wanted their $32,000 down payment back. And the owner said, oh, no, you don't. <laughs> you know, we're going through with the deal. So this case actually went as high as the New York State Supreme Court. And you can imagine these poor judges having to rule on a haunting. But they did rule that because the owner herself was putting forth these stories, as a matter of law, the house was legally haunted. Now, this was a huge story. I, it went around the world. I remember seeing newspaper clips from Danish newspapers. You know, it went out to the Far East because this was really the first legal haunting. So the, the buyers were able to get out of the deal. The house was subsequently sold. I interviewed those people, and they maybe they were just, you know, didn't want the publicity, but they said nothing had happened. However, there's been another set of owners who came in recently, and they're starting to talk about vacuum cleaners turning themselves on, uh, other appliances, strange things. So perhaps the haunted activity is continuing there. But this was a, a huge landmark in the not only the paranormal world, but the real estate world because suddenly laws had to be enacted to protect buyers and sellers. And in many places now across the U.S., a seller does have to disclose if he or she thinks the place is haunted. Um, Otherwise, the the buyers can back out of the deal, even if they're in contract. So this was a huge... A local thing, which became an international case. Now, in this particular case, Linda, the the original owner, uh, a woman by the name of um, Helen Ackley, she actually claimed that uh, there were not only physical manifestations, but that there were a couple of occurrences where these entities supposedly left physical objects, I guess rings. Yes, a gold ring, I think, in one case. That's That's very unusual. 
Yeah. That is definitely on the edge. My thought on that, if something like that actually did appear, I don't think it created it. Mm -hmm. I have heard of where people are looking for something and suddenly it's sitting on a table or they actually, people have witnessed objects moving, so perhaps it was something in the house that was somehow physically moved, um, which is... I, I don't know is a possibility, but as to physically manifesting gold rings, that's pushing it in my world, too. <laughs> hey, one thing I wonder about here is looking at, I guess we'll call it the theory of ghosts, and the common perception is that they are spirits of dead people. But in some areas, especially if you're attracting lots of paranormal activity, this would seem to argue against that, unless maybe UFOs are also related to spirits in some way. So what do you think? What's your perception of this? What ghosts actually are? Mm -hmm. from, from what I have, the cases I have studied, I think it is some kind of spiritual residual energy of people who have had generally tragic sudden ends or else they have died with things unresolved and they, whatever part of them exists after death has just not moved on. I, I don't subscribe to the thought that there are happy ghosts. I think they are trapped in these locations for certain reasons. And again, my idea of a ghost is spiritual energy that is trapped in a location as opposed to Say your grandmother died and you believe you saw her in your living room one night saying goodbye, you know, and you never saw her again. I, I think that's a different type of phenomenon. But to me, it is trapped spiritual energy. Now, to yes. build on that, Linda, though, the two things that I'm seeing in, in the research I'm doing about ghosts and apparitions is that there appear to be two classes of these things. One that is aware of its real-time surroundings and interacts with its real-time surroundings and another that is almost like some kind of, of a residual looping energy that yeah, doesn't seem aware goes. right right, right. Uh, so, that is definitely the case there are there are hauntings where it's a repetitive some kind of repetitive act where perhaps there was a case where you know somewhere around midnight they heard a door slam and and footsteps down the staircase and this would just happen regardless of what the the residents did um, and it would happen at the same either the same time of night or the same type of year some pattern that would just continue mm -hmm. and then there are clearly the hauntings where the, the ghosts are aware of what the people are doing. They try to interact rather, rather positively or negatively. Good example, um, a house local to me. There was a, some negative things going on, so the, they got the idea of trying to do smudging. I don't know if you're familiar with that. It's basically burning sage or some kind of incense just to try to clear the air. Yeah. And one, one night the husband woke up and he felt compelled to go into the basement and when he got into the dark basement he heard a man's voice say right next to him please don't smudge us which i oh. think is just fascinating first of all he said please which was nice but also please don't smudge us which if you believe this it implies there were more than one ghosts in the house they were aware of what these people were saying and what they intended to do so a very high level of consciousness and reaction in a case like that. 
this would seem that the ghosts in this case were very polite. <laughs> well, the, I, I should continue. The male ghost who said that was polite. Apparently, there were two sisters they think were also ghosts in the house. One of them apparently was very annoyed at the thought of having smoke blown at them because for several nights later, the the woman, the wife who had suggested this, woke up in the middle of the night with a choking cloud of cigarette smoke around her. Her huh. husband didn't smell anything, but she she was like gasping for breath. This smoke seemed so thick, and neither of them were smokers, and the windows were closed, and they did find out that these sisters were very, very heavy smokers. So I, I think there was a little payback there. <laughs> oh, boy. <laughs> driven me crazy. Oh Ghosts fighting amongst themselves. You know, maybe we should look also as we progress here at the science, if there is any behind ghosts, and you mentioned earlier as part of your investigative kit, Linda, that you take something to measure electromagnetic radiation. So where you have felt or seen things at the site of a haunting, a haunted house, whatever, have you been able to measure anything? Yes, there was a very clear case which actually combined the EMF meter and the experience of cold spots. I was standing in a in a room and I had the meter. I actually try to not hold it so I don't influence it. I had it on the floor a couple of feet in front of me. This very icy mass of air came from the right side and slowly passed through me, around me at least. It felt like it was through me. The meter correspondingly went up. The cold air mass stayed five to ten seconds, passed to my left. When the cold was passed, the meter went back down again. So I've had that case several, that type of experience several times, but that was probably the most clear and pronounced. So, um, that raises another question, which I want to get to in a moment. Go ahead. I was going to say, sometimes these pockets of higher electromagnetic fields are stationary. Uh, sometimes they move. So what we like to do is not only carry handheld meters, but put more sensitive meters. They're called tri-field meters that have little alarms so you know if something's happening even in, in the darkness. And we will set those at various locations, um, maybe in a closed room with a camcorder across the room. So if you're seeing any kind of lights or hearing anything unusual and the meter's going off, you know that there's some kind of energy in there as well. You are about to enter another dimension. A dimension not only of sight and sound, but of mind. A journey into a sinister land of secret rites, passwords, initiations, and handshakes, where the truth remains hidden and history is controlled by an elite group of mysterious men. Imagine, if you will, that I'm holding a book in my hands that explains this secret history and that the name of this book is Conspiracies and Secret Societies, The Complete Dossier. Here is described centuries of dark dealing, lies, murder, mayhem, and cover-ups in the pursuit of unimaginable money and power. My name is Brad Steiger, and the stories you are about to read may have actually happened at the signpost up ahead. Your next stop, Conspiracies and Secret Societies, The Complete Dossier. You're in the Paracast with Gene Steinberg and David Biedney. You 
never know what's going to happen next. You're in the PowerCast with Gene Steinberg and David Biedney. And if you want to get in touch with us, send your letters and also your audio recordings in MP3 format limited to 90 seconds to news at thepowercast.com, news at thepowercast.com, or visit our message forums at thepowercast.com. Our guest is Linda Zimmerman, author of many, many books on ghost hunting. If you go to ghostinvestigator.com, you can check out more of what she does. And now we're talking about this increase in electromagnetic radiation. So let's look at the devil's advocate side of that, okay, which is, is it possible that places that have more of this electromagnetic radiation can create images that one perceives or even physical effects? In other words, causing some kind of uh, hallucinations on the part of people. Yes, that's, that's a good point, because high natural fields can bring on some kind of hallucinations or at least very vivid dreaming. There was one case where this woman was having... Probably they were nightmares, but she was thinking they were very real. And so I went to investigate, and I found that the electrical socket right next to her bed Mm. um, had an enormously high reading. It was clearly improperly wired, and there are studies that show that improper wiring or maybe being near high-tension wires, that that kind of high natural electricity, electromagnetic field, can alter brain functions or at least influence them and give you hallucinations or very vivid dreams that you think are real. So that is clearly something I'm I'm always conscious of and, and try to be aware of. Well, yeah, even like oxygen deprivation can do that. If someone's in a room that doesn't have good ventilation and they're having these incredibly hyper-realistic nightmares, very often you literally find... Well, certainly if you travel to high altitude, I once spent a week in, in Crested Butte, Colorado, and the first two nights I was there, I was having the most unbelievable nightmares that, that were just so hyper-realistic. And I spoke to uh, other people in town, and they said, oh, you're probably just getting used to the altitude. So I think that also Oh, that's has, fascinating. Yeah, yeah. You know, Linda, this, this brings up another really interesting issue, Linda. Uh, there was a report recently from a professor at the University of Central Florida, apparently wrote an academic paper trying to prove that ghosts, among other things, that ghosts could not exist. Because if ghosts exist... Uh, then they have to be having some kind of a Newtonian interaction with their environment. And he, I actually downloaded this PDF, and um, among other things, he says, well, how can a ghost walk uh, unless they're actually interacting with the floor because walking is uh, the result of a physical interaction? And so he, he postulates, can, how can a ghost be material and materialist at the same time? What's your reaction to that? Well, I don't uh, think that's a really valid point. I mean, if you're seeing it as just an image of light, it can appear to be anything it wants to be and appear to be interacting with anything. It's, it's an image. It may be a psychic image. It may be a physical manifestation of some type of energy and light. You know, there are witnesses who see, see images pass through walls. Mm-hmm. It just may be an image in their head. I don't think it's physically molecules passing through the molecules of wood. It's a projection of some sort. David, you liken that to a movie projector, as a matter of fact. Yeah, we were talking about this before we started recording it, and what occurred to me when I read this report, and I actually downloaded it and read it, not one of the stronger academic studies I've ever read in my life, but among other things, this uh, professor kept using 
the analogy of, um, well, actually, he talked about, wasn't using an analogy, he talked about ghost interactions with the real world based on citing specific scenes in the movie Ghost with Patrick Swayze and uh, Demi Moore. And that kind of made me laugh in that uh, this same professor obviously never thought about the notion that an image that's projected, let's say a movie projection onto a screen, uh, that doesn't have a Newtonian interaction with the screen in the sense that when something explodes on the, on the projected image, that doesn't make the screen shatter into little pieces. And I thought that his science was, was lacking a little bit in that he kind of tried to draw these broad strokes and say, well, um, you know, if your mind sees or your eyes see this apparition, then it must be physical matter. And when it's physical matter, it can't go through a wall because solid objects can't pass through other solid objects. Of course, that also made me think, well, has this guy ever heard of neutrinos? They're particles. <laughs> How about x-rays? <laughs> well, yeah. I mean, you know, the, the, the fact of the matter is that an atom is mostly empty space. We know that. That's not some kind of a fringe or crackpot theory. That's the basic aspects of physics. So, you know, it's, I, I always find it interesting that people come up with these incomplete descriptions and then also take this um, stance that one thing explains everything. Well, a ghost has no mass, but maybe it does have mass. If it does have mass, how can it go through a wall? Uh, can't do that so there are no ghosts. I mean, it's that polarity of thought that is unfortunate. It's the assumption that science at this point understands everything. My God, we still don't know what it lives at the bottom of the ocean. You know, it's interesting also how the press will accept statements like this without question. For example, this is, came off the Associated Press, this particular story. And it's written by somebody who was supposed to be, and I won't mention the person's name, a science writer for the Associated Press. Now, if you're a science writer, wouldn't you know enough about the subjects to ask questions of that nature? and then report on the answers, or do you just regurgitate what the person says in his quote-unquote academic report, I wonder? Yeah, it, it's a shame to um, to find reports like that that seem to be closed-minded, and anything that's basing its premise on a Hollywood depiction in the first place kind of lacks credibility for me. But right. you know what I, you know, a lot of people think if you believe in ghosts, you're ignorant and uneducated, and I have found just the opposite. Um, I know a brilliant surgeon locally who's also a wonderful uh, charity worker, has devoted her whole life to, to science and charity, and she's completely convinced that her house has the ghost of the man who, who built the place, and it's because she has seen it and heard it, and just because her science can't you know, quantify it, it, it doesn't mean it, ex it doesn't exist. And I've seen many educated, intelligent people who put together all their experiences and, and the history of the location, and they say, okay, maybe there's something beyond our textbooks. You know, I am open to that. I, I am skeptical at the same time, but certainly because it's not written down somewhere and quantified by experiments doesn't mean it doesn't exist. Absolutely. I would agree with that 100%. It's, it's, I think, another manifestation of the polarization of all discuss. It's another manifestation of the polarization of all debate and discussion in this country at this point, where either you're absolutely scientific in terms of the, 
notion that if you can't touch it, it doesn't exist, or you basically believe that a supreme being created everything, and uh, even though you can't touch that supreme being, uh, everything you do should be in service of that supreme being. There doesn't seem to be, well, at least it, it seems like lately, there doesn't seem to be a lot of gray area in between those things, and unfortunately, I think the reality lies somewhere in between those two positions. It's also the height of egomania to say that we know everything. There's nothing more Absolute, to know. Absolutely. And one of the things I have uh, researched and written about is the history of science and scientists and the persecution in particular that these scientists have gone through. The, the astronomers who 400 years ago were burned at the stake or, you know, Galileo being threatened by the church because he said the sun was in the center of the solar system. You know, this type of, as you said, polarization, this this adhering to something because if it's not true, you lose personal power or your organization mm -hmm. loses power. It It's a shame, but it's something that has been going on for hundreds, if not thousands of years, and unfortunately will probably continue. Hmm. So it's almost like the scientists are getting their revenge now. <laughs> <laughs> Well, there are still many scientists who are who are open to this, but unfortunately, the the mainstream, you know, won't even acknowledge that it's a possibility. Where do you want to go now in your research, having covered the ghost scene such as it is for ten years? What is your next goal to achieve here? Well, I will still continue to visit haunted sites um, and try to gain as gather as much data as possible. Um, I've also started recently working with a couple of psychics who, you know, I was very hesitant to do that in the beginning only because I had dealt with some really bad psychics, but I found a couple who I think, you know, are, are really connected, and I'm actually planning on revisiting some past sites where I have gotten some scientific evidence, and I would like to bring them in and see what they can add to you know any pieces to the puzzle, so that's that's a, a near time a near goal. But in the long term, I would love to get that piece of video or photograph that even the skeptic can say, "All right, you know now that now there's now there's reason to make me think." Uh huh. If we go to ghostinvestigator.com, what kind of content will we see there? I have some highlights from investigations. I have some tips on how to conduct a ghost hunt. A lot of people People ask me how to get started. There's a section where you can send me your questions, comments, or if you want to have an investigation, there's a form you can fill out to to let me have some background, let me know what's going on, and you know see if I will, you know will will pursue the investigation. So it's a little bit of everything uh, at this point. Do you travel beyond your local area, or do you? talk to other ghost investigators about pursuing investigations in different parts of the country or the world? Due to time constraints, I'm mostly local, but I, I have traveled, you know, maybe eight to ten hours um, distance. Uh, there are a few investigations that seem to be getting farther and farther away, which is fine because I, I enjoy visiting, you know, other haunts and other localities. I generally do this alone or with one or two other people, but a couple of groups have approached me and, you know, maybe we'll do a group investigation. But, you know, you see some of these shows where there are so many people 
it's tough to rely on on the evidence. You know, I I always say that the reliability of the evidence is inversely proportional to the number of ghost hunters. <laughs> um, Too many ghost hunters spoil the investigation, huh? They they really do. And, well, you know, uh, you'll... Yeah, I can't, of course, think of any jokes, which is how many ghost hunters is it take to screw in a light bulb? <laughs> oh, forget it. Oh, well, maybe your listeners can write in uh, some clever responses to that. I would love to see them. <laughs> but what books do you have out right now? Or coming out shortly that our listeners might want to check out? Well, the uh, the most recent is Ghost Investigator Volume 6, Dark Shadows, it is called, for obvious reasons. That has the story about the uh, the place with the dark apparition. The, you know, Volumes 1 through 5 are also still available. The earlier volumes, I was not doing so much in-depth investigations, but they're interesting because you can see how I evolved as, a, as an investigator. So those are available. I also did write a novel um, uh, called Dead Center, uh, surprisingly enough, about a female ghost investigator <laughs> who investigates a, uh, a haunted shopping mall and a Civil War battle site because I'm also a Civil War history buff, so I was able to combine those interests. But if you're interested in the hardcore investigative ghost hunting, check out the Ghost Investigator series. The more, the more recent books, the volumes, I'd say four, five, and six, have the most in-depth investigation. Uh, I thank you very much for this level-headed presentation. And David suggested you to me, and I wonder just what kind of outlook we'd get. And when I look at your material and I listen to what you have to say, I see that you're approaching this from a very fair-minded point of view. You clearly don't have an axe to grind, and it looks like you're working real hard to try to get some genuine information. Linda Zimmerman, Ghost Investigator, thank you for joining us on the Paracast. Thank you. It was a pleasure. Thank you. Thank you, Linda. You're in the Paracast with Gene Steinberg and David Bandney. You never know what's going to happen next. You know what? I've been on the fence about ghosts, you know. Yeah. I, I know you've had some very unusual encounters in your life, and certainly the one involving your late mother was really, really compelling. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I'll tell you something. I can pay a lot more serious attention to it after listening to Linda Zimmerman. What a level-headed person she is. She's good, right? She That comes across in the books. She's meticulous. She's certainly compelled by what appear to be well we don't know what these things really are but they appear to be paranormal episodes that people are experiencing and that she has also had first-hand experience with and that to me that says a lot and indeed we have lots lots more to say coming up on the paracast and in part two of the show we're going to be talking to tom hartman the famous talk show host that's coming up on the paracast welcome back to the paracast with gene steinberg and david Vietti. There are a lot of other topics that we want to explore in future episodes of the Paracast. For example, power politics, election conspiracies, the Kennedy assassination, subjects like that. And we've got somebody really incredibly interesting coming up next. And he's a nationally known talk show host all by himself. You've heard him on Air America and elsewhere. His name is Tom Hartman. He's really good. And he's joining us next on the Paracast.
She came to Earth to conquer our planet. He traveled to the future to conquer her heart. Experience the adventure of a lifetime. Attack, Attack of the Rockoids. The critics are raving about Attack of the Rockoids. One reviewer writes, The father and son writing team of Gene and Grayson Steinberg have written a marvelous, fast-paced story of interstellar warfare and star-crossed love. The battle scenes are so descriptive, you can see the spaceships explode and be consumed by gigantic balls of flame. I enjoyed this story, and the authors say there is more to come about the characters and the future world of the Rockoids. Fans of Star Wars and Star Trek will enjoy this story and look forward to many more adventures of Ray and Xanther. That's Attack, Attack of the Rockoids. Order your copy direct from Amazon Books, or check out a sample chapter and get a special discount on your copy direct from www.rockoids.com. That's www.rockoids.com. Attack of the Rockoids in the grand science fiction tradition. You've entered another dimension. You've entered the Paracast. Tom, you've written a book called The Last Hours of Ancient Sunlight, The Fate of the World and What We Can Do Before It's Too Late. What is the fate of the world, and can we actually bring this back from the brink? Thank you, David. The reality is that we're drifting toward disaster in so many different areas. We're running out of water. That's probably what's going to be the biggest crisis. I mean, it already is. It's a crisis right now for between 2 and 3 billion people on this planet, a lack of access to safe, reliable water, arguably as many as 4 billion people. The end of the era of fossil fuels, the the mass extinction of species, the uh, desertification, you know, loss of, of global land. We've seen our population explode. You know, all of human history up until the year 1800, it took all that time, 165,000 years of human history, to produce the first one billion people. And then the second billion only took 130 years, 1930. The third billion only took 30 years, 1960. The fourth billion only took 14 years, 1974. The fifth billion took only 13 years, 1987. And the sixth billion took only, what, 11, 12 years, 1999. And we're now at six and a half billion. We're pushing that. And at the same time, we're running out of water and we're running out of land to grow food. And what has made possible that explosion in population is that, you know, five of those six billion people are essentially eating oil. We're converting oil into food by using it to power factory farming. From the farming itself, the manufacturing of pesticides, the matter of manufacturing of fertilizers, to, you know, replacing cows and oxen with, with tractors, to transportation and packaging. And, I mean, you know, the, right down to the oil that makes the plastic that wraps our food up. So, in a very real way, we're consuming, we're eating oil, five of the six billion of us, more or less. And if oil goes away, then probably the planet could support, uh, under optimal circumstances, between half a billion and one and a half billion people. And that would be with a huge ecological footprint. So we're facing some real tough challenges and, and possibly, well, not possibly some real tough times. I mean, there's, you know, large, literally billions of people on the planet are facing very tough times right now. And those of us living in the, in the developed world are on the edge of facing some really tough times. So, you know, the question is, what do we do about it? And in the book, the first third of the book kind of goes through those problems that I just laid out. And then the second part of the book suggests that the technology 
is not going to save us. A new agricultural revolution isn't going to save us. You know, figuring out new gee whiz gadgets isn't going to save us because the problem isn't a technological problem. The problem has to do with certain assumptions that are built into our culture. It has to do with how we think. And so it's only when we change our fundamental perception of the world, our way of thinking, our understanding of who we are relative to everybody else on the planet and every other living thing on the planet and everything in the universe for that matter, it's only when we change that fundamental notion of what it means to be human that we will be able to make those changes that are, that are necessary. So how do you convince people to leave the comfort of the material world that's been spun around them? Because what you're really describing is a significant spiritual evolution. You're talking about you know, convincing people that, no, you should not have five or six children. No, you should ignore the religious tenets that you've followed for hundreds, in some cases thousands of years. Do you think it's actually possible, Tom, to convince people to think about the near term, because this is not a long-term problem. This is a near-term problem. You're, you're talking about a situation where potentially there's a die-off of a couple of billion people. Yeah. Well, and it's already underway in, in some parts of the world. It's not so much a you-should thing. You know, it's it's not a matter of our going to people and saying, hey, wake up to this. It's a, it's a matter of relearning lessons that we've learned before. I mean, humanity has gone through this over and over and over again. Uh, we have, if you look at the history of indigenous and Aboriginal people around the planet who do live in ways that are sustainable and, and have had stable populations for tens of thousands of years, you discover that there are a couple of things that they know that we don't know. One of them is that, that humans are part of everything else. We're a living organism in a, in a system of living organisms. We interrelate with that system of living organisms. We are interdependent with it. We're dependent upon it. It depends on us to, at, at a certain level, the level at which we, you know, we interact with it. And that defies the Western notion that we are somehow disconnected from everything else that's all alive. You know, the, the whole notion that came from Aristotle that, you know, the universe is a machine and if we can just figure out where the right levers are and pull them in the right way, <laughs> that it's going to solve all problems. And, and the fact of the matter is that we and the systems in, into which we are interdependent are biological systems, not mechanical systems. I mean, I can take apart my car, given a certain level of expertise, which frankly I don't have, but I could acquire, I can take apart my car and spread the pieces all over the driveway and then put it back together again and turn the key and it would run. But I can't take apart a cow and spread his pieces all over the driveway and then put put him back together and have him move. I mean, it just ain't going to happen. Biological systems are fundamentally different from machines. And in the West, we have viewed ourselves in relationship to the rest of the world as essentially we're the only living thing and everything else in the world is a machine. And in fact, even to a large extent, we view ourselves as machines. You know, one of the fallacies of modern medicine. If we can just figure out the right pill, you know, the right button to push, the right, right. Uh, the right enzyme to change. And the consequence of this mechanistic thinking, this, this belief that everything is dead except us, and even we are at a certain level, the consequence of this, that, you know, we make decisions that don't anticipate the outcomes. And over and over and over again, if you, again, if you look at Aboriginal Indigenous people, over and over again, they made similar mistakes. They wiped out ecosystems in the, the Maori of New Zealand. I mean, they, they wiped out 36 
six species of moa birds. You know, I mean, they've decimated the island uh, in North America. There's there's you know some evidence that some of the some of the larger land mammals uh, were, were wiped out by by humans occupying North America 20,000 years ago. And what came out of that was what came out of the population crashes that followed that and the disasters that followed that was an understanding that, hey, we can't think this way anymore. And this kind of uh, new age, touchy-feely, isn't it cool, isn't it spiritual, uh, you know, it's how it's perceived by Westerners, way of thinking of, you know, I am one with the sky and I am one with the earth and it's all Mother Nature and all that, you know, that is often associated with Native spirituality is really just survival thinking. I mean, this is this is the, the perspective that is necessary to understand how to live in a way that doesn't ultimately lead to the death of all of us. Mm-hmm. And that fundamental re-understanding of who we are is something that either we're going to acquire by virtue of, of people like you and I talking about it and, and people waking up to it, or by virtue of the kind of devastating crash that causes us to confront it and acknowledge that, you know, it's undeniable. Hey, this is what it is. It's a, it's a disaster now, but this is what it is. You're in the Paracast with Gene Steinberg and David Biedney. Never know what's going to happen next. You're in the so, Paracast with Gene Steinberg and David Biedney. We're talking to Tom Hartman, prolific author of lots and lots of books. And also you can learn more about him and his talk show at TomHartman.com. That's T-H-O-M-H-A-R-T-M-A-N-N.com. We'll have a link at theparacast.com. And by the way, if you want to contact us, either via email or you could send an audio response, send it to news at theparacast.com. And what I see in what you're saying here is that there appears to be a very big spiritual disconnect, Tom, between how we live and what we believe. Now, we also have reached a point in our world where we no longer trust our governments, especially the U.S. government. We don't believe that they offer solutions. So how do we survive in this particular environment? Well, I'd say, first of all, it's not so much a spiritual disconnect. It's it's a cultural disconnect. You know, as a culture, we're not understanding our relationship to the world around us. Spiritually, I, I suspect that there are a lot of people who get it, and we're finding more and more people rejecting or backing away from some of the religious notions that have driven population, and, and at some point remind me to, to tell you about the, the one thing that we know actually causes population increase and decrease outside of starvation. In terms of disconnect between Americans and their government, I think that there's, it's kind of a schizophrenic thing, because on the one hand, most Americans have great belief in the ideals of America and in the institutions of America, and they want their social security check, and they want to know that the government is making sure that there's not trichinomiasis in in their meat, uh, or that the uh, food that they're eating is safe, or that the drugs that they're taking are actually uh, effective and, and not poisonous. They want the government to be providing good education to their kids and making sure that the potholes are filled in the roads and that the, the, the street lights work in the neighborhoods, and, and expect that. And, and at that level, have actually a lot of confidence in government and the institutions of government. 
At the same time, we see that there is a relatively small cabal of extremists who have, to a large extent, hijacked the institutions, at least at the federal level, and in many states, even at the state and county level, the institutions of government, and they've used misdirection to do it. They say, don't, you know, don't think about the economy, don't think about the loss of the middle class, don't think about, you know, our, our starting wars in foreign lands for the purpose of enriching our friends and gaining political power. Instead, think about whether or not the homosexuals are out to get your children, you know, uh, which kind of backfired on it with Mark Foley, but nonetheless. Or think about, you know, whether the Democrats want to take away your guns, and which, you know, has never been part of the Democratic agenda, or whether the, the Ten Commandments should be in, in public, public, you know, and these small issues, or abortion, you know, these, these relatively small issues that certainly deserve a place in the dialogue and discourse of America, but are not the issues that are going to define the quality of life of the vast majority of people. And so by keeping people focused on the small issues that serve as wedges to drive us apart, these guys have been able to, to acquire power, and then once they had access to that power, they used it to enrich themselves and their friends and to, to try to lock up and secure their own power for the future. And I think a lot of Americans are looking at that very cynically, you know, and they're, they're looking at, you know, Halliburton, I mean, even reincorporating Kellogg, Brown, and Root in the Cayman Islands so that they don't have to pay U.S. income taxes on the 30, 40, 50 percent overhead, what many would call overcharges, Congressman Henry Wax certainly would, overcharges of, of the hundreds of billions of dollars that they're squeezing out of the taxpayers and making an enormous profit on. And all that profit flows directly into the shareholders like Dick Cheney. And people look at that and go, you know, there's something fundamentally wrong with that. I think that the cynicism and the distrust of government has been fueled in part by two things. One, when Reagan came in in 1980, he ran against government, even though he was running to become government. And then in 84, he again ran against government, even though he was government. And that caused a certain schizophrenia in people's minds. They, you know, they, they bought the slogans, but they also, at some deep level, knew that the slogans were inconsistent with the reality. You know, government is evil, but don't worry, we'll protect your Social Security check. It's like, what? And so there's that. And then there's this, you know, relatively pervasive corruption that is the consequence of a system that, because of largely because of two Supreme Court decisions in the last 30 years has equated money with speech and has said that corporations are persons and, and have the right to speech and, and therefore money has come to dominate our political system and a lot of people feel like the government doesn't represent we the people anymore, it represents them the corporation. And so, you know, all this stuff is kind of coming to a head at the same time and that's the bad news. The good news is that people are doing things about it. In Arizona and Maine, uh, entire states have gone with basically vote-around elections with with. Uh, electoral systems where anybody can run for office with, you know, no matter how much money they have or don't have. And you have literally in Arizona a housewife who ran for the House of Representatives and, and won. You have uh, small business people. You have, you have, I mean, the people who have typically been disenfranchised from politics running and, and able to win. In, in the city where I live, in Portland, Oregon, we have vote around elections. If you can get a thousand people to give you five bucks, that's raising five thousand dollars, but it's also demonstrated that there's a thousand people out there who care enough to actually give you money. You can get a thousand people to give you five dollars and their name and address and their signature, people who are registered voters then the city will give you $100,000 towards your campaign. Hmm. And, and so you've got $105,000 to work with. And in this last campaign that we had, there was a woman who said, I'm not going to take the city's money. I'm going to instead take money from Enron. 
and she would because public power is a big issue here and Enron's trying to buy their way into the election and they wanted to have their candidate be on the city council and so Enron gave her 125,000 bucks so the city said okay fine we'll give another 25,000 to all the other candidates so Enron gives another 25,000 up to 150 and the city says okay fine we'll give another 25,000 to everybody and you know the agreement that we all had in Portland we the people when we created this system was that somebody tries to buy their way into this election we're not going to let them do it we're going to match them all the way up you know with our money because this is our election and this is our system and fortunately she lost the election and, and the guy that she was running against who was a clean money guy and you know using the city funds um, won and and because everybody understood what was going on I mean it was right up there in the newspaper so here it is you know Enron trying to buy another election that was totally transparent and a lot of cities are looking at this. San Francisco just instituted instant runoff voting, which allows multiple parties to participate in elections. You know, it solves one of the one of the problems of the way that this uh, republic was put together back in the early days. And there's a lot, and there's over 300 communities around the United States, mostly at the, at, at, because of local Green Party activity, that have put into place instant runoff voting that allows for multiple parties. So I see a lot of actually good things happening, and a lot of people getting energized and, and saying, you know, we actually do believe in the ideals of this country. We we want America once again to be that beacon of liberty and light for the world. And they're rejecting the politics of fear and the politics of, of big money. Hmm. Another question about elections, though, Tom, is that more and more we hear stories about how the 2000 election, the 2004 election was stolen by either number one with the Supreme Court in 2000, but in doing things, dirty tricks that both parties do yeah. some sort of dirty trick. But if the party that does the dirty tricks better than the other party in a close election can win. Now, what is your feeling about all this? Well, it's it's fairly clear. I mean, you know, on November 12, 2001, a year after the election, a year and a week after the election, the New York Times published the count from Florida. The Florida Supreme Court had ruled that every vote in the state should be counted. George Bush sued at the Supreme Court to stop that count. And then Justice Rehnquist, whose daughter was working for the Bush campaign, ruled that the the plaintiff, George W. Bush, would be ir irreparably harmed if the vote were to go forward, if the count were to go forward in Florida, and, you know, in Bush v. Gore. And it turned out that, you know, a year later, November 12th, the New York Times and the Washington Post published the results of the actual count. They went down to Florida and got all those ballots and big trucks and brought them up and counted them three different times. And that no matter how you counted it, whether hanging Chad, dimple Chad, pimple Chad, pregnant Chad, no matter what, no matter intent of voter, you know, undervotes, overvotes, no matter what, Al Gore got more votes than George W. Bush did in Florida, period. So he won the election. But, you know, this was just uh, a month after 9-11. And so they basically buried the story. And I think most Americans don't even know this today, that Al Gore actually won the 2000 election. I mean, not conspiracy theory Al Gore won it, but, you know, New York Times counted the votes and he actually won it. So, yeah, the, you know, we were, the 2000 election, obviously it was stolen. Um, the 2002 election, there's no doubt in my mind that in Georgia, the first state to go with entirely paper-free system, the touchscreen machines, devolver machines, where there was absolutely no paper trail whatsoever and absolutely no way to audit the vote or recount the vote. And all the polls showed that Senator Max Cleland, the Democrat who left three limbs behind the, on the battlefield in Vietnam, um, who was going up against Saxby Chambliss, a draft-dodging Republican who was 
running on the platform of that he was more patriotic and more friendly to the military than was Max Cleland. Right? And it's just how heinous. absurd is that, right? Oh God! It's All disgusting. polls showed that Cleland was 53 to 45 ahead of Saxby Chambliss before the election. The polls after the election showed that Cleland beat Chambliss by 53 to 45. <laughs> For 58 years, fate has provided true reports of the strange and unknown. Fate brings you the latest in all aspects of the paranormal, like angels and miracles, psychic phenomena, ghosts, UFOs, and much, much more. To receive your complimentary Fate magazine, call now at 1-800-728-2730. Or visit their website at www.fatemag.com. That's 1-800-728-2730 or www.fatemag.com. What are you waiting for? Your fate awaits. This is The Paracast with your hosts, Gene Steinberg and David Bietney. You never know what's going to happen next. You're in the PowerCast with Gene Steinberg and David B. Etney, and we have a discussion, I guess, about our fundamental freedoms in lots of areas, and we're talking to Tom Hartman. He's an Air America talk show host. He has written or co-authored lots and lots of very, very important books. A recent one, Screwed, The Undeclared War Against the Middle Class. So we'll have a link to his site at thepowercast.com. If you want to reach us, go to thepowercast.com, send your email to news at thepowercast.com, or check out our message forums. So let's pursue this. The 2002 election, how did he lose if he was so far ahead in the polls? Well, you know, Sexy Chambliss won by exactly the margin that all the polls showed Max Cleland won by. So it's just (laughs) obvious to me that the machines flipped the vote. They just reversed it. You know what worries me about those machines is the Diebold machines use Windows CE, which is kind of a reduced version of Windows. Now, we all know that Windows is not the most secure operating system in the world. This is not a platform Mac versus PC argument. It's a fact of life. And that also election officials are not trained IT managers to keep track of this. It's really easy to hack these machines. And that's the real sad fact of it all, in addition to anything else. Yeah, there's an even bigger issue here, though. Because, frankly, I'm guessing that if the Democrats take the House or take the House and the Senate this time, that you're going to have Republicans out there yelling that Democrats to hack the machines because that happened in Seattle. I mean, you know, when Christine Gregoire won in Seattle, you had Dino Rossi out there yelling and screaming for better part of six months that she had stolen the election, you know, by hacking machines and things. So basically, so, the party that loses is the one that didn't hack as good as the party that wins. Well, that's that's kind of the argument that's being made, and, and you know, and and they, but the but the real issue here. In my mind, I mean, you know, yes, we have this, we have a problem in that we have, by rushing to embrace this technology, we have a technology that is fatally flawed, in my opinion. But there's a larger issue, and that is the United States was founded on the idea that we the people, the first three words of the Constitution, we the people own the commons, we the people own the government, we the people hold all the rights, and all all institutions, including government itself, are subservient to our will. And 
whether it's the commons of our roads, whether it's the commons of our schools, whether it's the commons of our police departments and fire departments, whether it's the commons of the air we breathe, whether it's the commons of our mighty rivers, um, whatever it, you know, the common, the, our national parks, whatever those commons may be, and, and of our government, and our, and our government buildings, that got, those commons are that, that we own are administered by people that we hire to administer them, and we decide who those people are, what their policies will be, with our vote. So you could argue that because the government administers the commons, it's like the most important of the commons. And because our vote is the way we tell the government how to administer the commons, it's the most it's even more and a more important part of the commons than the government is. It's the most important part of the commons. Thus the question, who was the insane maniac who thought that the, that it was a good idea to privatize the vote? We have private for-profit corporations maintaining our voter roll lists, telling us who is eligible to vote and who's not eligible to vote. And this was one of the big scandals in Florida as well, is that you had a Texas company come in and knock 80,000 legitimate voters off the voting rolls illegally. And many of those people are still off the voting rolls. Uh, it took a court order to get the, to get them to stop, and Jeb Bush ignored that court order for the 2002 elections. And this is a private for-profit company, and then you get private for-profit companies running the voting machines and telling us how we voted, telling us what our tally, you know, what the tally is, all this kind of stuff. This is a felony against democracy. So it's not even an issue of, you know, can we trust the machines or not? It's an issue of who owns our elections. Is it we the people? Do we own our government and the means by which we run our government? Or is it Diebold and, and Sequoia, the s and And Sequoia is not even an American company. It's a Venezuelan company. I was going to ask and, you about that. Yes, right. Yeah, and which you wish the Republicans are going to freak out about if they lose, you know, anywhere that Sequoia machines are, are used, I guarantee. And so, you know, really what we need a fundamental rethinking of this. We need to go back to paper ballots. I mean, it's just this is not rocket science. We need to go back to paper ballots. And just like Canada did, Canada experimented with these voting machines six years ago, and they said, nah, not going to do it. They did it in Quebec. Too many problems, too much risk, forget it. And they went back to paper. All of Europe uses paper. Australia uses it. Everybody uses paper all over the world except us. What's, you know, <laughs> well, we think we've got a, you know, a, a lock, a monopoly on wisdom or infallibility. It's, we, you know, we need to take back our election system, period. And that's, frankly, I think the, the much larger issue than which voting machine is the safest. There shouldn't be any. Or if we are using voting machines, they should be owned by government. They should be programmed with open source software that anybody can look at that's absolutely mm -hmm. transparent. And the machines should not be actually tabulating the ballot. They should be printing ballots. They should be basically fancy printing machines. And then the actual paper ballots are the ones that get counted. So, you know, the thing, Tom, is that there's always been the underlying conspiracy theory that money runs the show. Some people would argue that since the beginning of written history, money has run the show and, it's, and money equates to power, equates to control. I think a lot of people are at the point where they're kind of at this point convinced that the government really ends up being nothing more than a front to money, that this is perhaps not a democracy. Maybe it's more of a corporate feudal state and that feudalism has always been there in the background no matter what the outside facade is that underneath of it, essentially, the money calls the shots. What do you think about that? Is, the, is there a potential for that to be true? And if so, how does one counteract that? Yeah, it's sort of the, the Howard Zinn view of American history, and, right. and there's a lot of truth to it. And, and Howard Zinn lays it out in his People's History of America or the United mm -hmm. States, I think it's called. Yeah, sure. And the way that you counter that is by having an engaged populace. I mean, the, the reforms that Teddy Roosevelt put into place of, of busting up 
big corporations, you know, busting the trusts, uh, the reforms that Franklin Roosevelt put into place, uh, the, everything from the GI Bill making it possible for, for people from, you know, the working poor and middle class families to go to college, um, the federal home mortgage guarantees so that people could buy houses. Uh, the minimum wage so that if you play by the rules and, and, and work 40 hours a week and, and do a good job, you actually can raise a family and, and, and live the middle class dream, the American dream. The, the Wagner Act of 1935 that allowed for unionization, the United States National Labor Relations Act. All of these things, uh, child labor laws, maximum hour laws, uh, all of these things in, in combination uh, with uh, international trade policies that in involve tariffs that protected domestic industries, all of these together and collectively, you know, built America into a great uh, democratic society uh, or democratic republic or whatever you want to call it, and and built one of the greatest middle classes the world has ever seen between the years of 1940 and 1980. Ronald Reagan began dismantling that middle class, and over the last 26 years, we've seen that, you know, he and his followers have done a very good job of that, you know, destroying the middle class. Because uh, middle class is kind of a scary, dangerous thing for conservatives. The, the, there have been there's been a strong middle class in the United States twice in the 1770s and the 1970s, and both times we had social upheaval. And therefore, they look at that and they say, you know, we don't really want this middle class thing. It's uh, you know, we don't want you know. In the, in the 1770s, there was, there was blood in the streets. I mean, people knew there was a revolution. They fought against the king. And in the 1970s, uh, well, again, there was blood in the streets. I mean, look at Kent State, and, and you had women out burning bras and demanding reproductive freedom and you had African-Americans saying hey what about that equality you talked about and 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 uh, you had students saying hell no I won't you know go fight in some silly war that that you know only profits LBJ and his buddies or Nixon and his friends I mean it's just the conservatives looked at this and said this is a society in meltdown this is not a good thing we don't want there to be in their minds we don't want there to be this this strong class and so they're taking it apart, which gets right to the fundamental issue of your question, and that is, you know, who holds the power? You're in the Paracast with Gene Steinberg and David Biedney. You never know what's going to happen next. You're in the Paracast with Gene Steinberg and David Biedney. If you want to contact us, either via email or with an audio and keep it to less than 90 seconds, send it to news at theparacast.com, news at theparacast.com, and visit our message forums at theparacast.com. Author, commentator Tom Hartman joins us. You can go to tomhartman.com to learn more or check our link over at theparacast.com. So, okay, let's go to part two of that question and part two of that answer. Go ahead. You know, the, the, the easy answer is that to the extent that government interferes in the marketplace, to use the language of the right, by regulating industry, by breaking up monopolies, by uh, limiting the ability of corporations to prevent competition in the marketplace, by, by, by empowering local communities to say no to, to big corporations like Walmart, for example, um, to the extent that government acts as a force on behalf of the people, by the will of the people, our society becomes progressively more democratic and big money has progressively less power. You can make a very strong argument that during the period from 1940 to 1980 it was, was probably the time only equaled by the period from 1770 to 1830 was the time when, when great wealth and, and corporate wealth had the least amount of power in the United States. And 
that those times when we've had you know Republican administrations and, and robber barons and most Americans have been the working poor, uh, I mean, there virtually was no middle class outside of the small family farmer in the United States from 1830 to, to 1930. We had a 100-year period where the middle class just got wiped out, which brought about the populist movement and the wobblies and the unionist movement and the progressive movement in the late 1800s. But, you know, that era of Republican rule is, is you know, certainly what the right-wingers are trying to take us back to because they saw that as a fundamentally stable society and they liked the fact that, you know, they had that wealth and that control. And I think by waking people up to how that works, and that's what my new book, Screwed, is all about, is, you know, how does that work and how did they put that together and why do they why do, they do that? I mean, these are actually people who think that, that's, that what they're doing is the best for America. It's not just about greed. There's actually a philosophy at work here. To the extent that we can wake people up to that, and get them empowered and get them active and involve them in the political process is the extent to which we can make America, you know, once again a democratic nation, small-d democratic nation. So, Tom, given what you just said, how do you take a society that seems to have been essentially reduced to being consumers, consumers of religion, consumers of products, consumers of entertainment, how do you make them do a transition from being consumers to actually being proactive citizens, or is that really even feasible at this point in history? Uh, and I, I want to be optimistic about this, but the more that I see, for example, the level of discourse in the media, it seems like we've entered into a time of extreme polarization. What's the formula for pulling us back from that tendency? It is to return to the New Deal, essentially. I mean, the, the first middle class in America was the result of killing off Indians and you know, Native Americans and stealing their land and their resources. It was a middle class that was created by a, a large amount of wealth in terms of natural resources and slave labor and, and a relatively small population. As our population grew past, you know, 1820s, 1830s, as the, pop, the European population in North America started reaching the point where we were consuming resources at a, at a rate where we were no longer all rich, you know, the middle class went away. And and so Roosevelt, when Roosevelt came along, he said, okay, we're not going to, you know, we don't have more land to steal from the Indians, and we don't have... We're not going to, you know, like the Spanish did in, in the 1500s, we're not going to, you know, discover gold someplace and create a middle class that way. So we're going to create a middle class by changing the rules of the game of business. And and by changing the rules of the game of business, you know, we're still going to allow for capitalism, we're still going to allow for free enterprise, but we're going to do so in a way that puts the needs of society first and the needs of profit second. You know, that... That formula fundamentally changed in the 1980s as a result of the so-called Reagan Revolution, and has not changed back. And we need to we need to go back to the founding ideals of the New Deal because that was an extraordinary experiment that Franklin Roosevelt did. Some of the things he did you know, didn't work, and he was the first to say so. But many of them worked spectacularly, and they, you know they're still with us, and, and they need to be strengthened and they need to be reinvigorated. I suspect some of our listeners might think and might come to the conclusion that a lot of the current situation was created when essentially corporate entities were given the rights of individual citizens and didn't seem to be given the same sets of responsibilities of individual citizens. Is there any possibility of us regaining a positive momentum in this? And again, I'm trying not to sound pessimistic. I just look at the situation as it currently stands, and it seems like momentum is pushing this forward in a way that outside of a some kind of very significant shift in people's ideologies, that it just doesn't seem like this is possible given 
the incredible inertia momentum that this this destructive tendency has. Please offer us some optimistic words, Tom. If that's yeah, it, it, yes, it is. In 1886, there was this this Supreme Court decision, Santa Clara County versus Southern Pacific Railroad, that people today argue gave corporations the rights of persons under the 14th Amendment. Mm -hmm. The fact of the matter is that that's not how the Supreme Court ruled, but nonetheless, that's how the court, in 37 cases since then, has ruled that the court ruled because of a headnote written by the court reporter that was in error, and so. Corporations, to a large extent, do have the rights of citizens, uh, you know, Fifth Amendment rights uh, uh, to not self-incriminate and Fourth Amendment rights to privacy and Fourteenth Amendment rights against discrimination and things like that. And it's absurd because uh, corporations are not living things. They don't have to have clean water to, to and, 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 fr and clean air, fresh air to, to, to live. They don't have a defined lifespan. They, they, you know, after which their belongings are probated, you know, they, they, they can go on accumulating wealth forever. And, I mean, it wasn't always that way in the United States. Up until the late 1800s, in most states, corporations couldn't, a corporation couldn't be formed for more than a 40-year period. But, yeah, we have changed the rules of the game. And, and this gets back to the whole thing of, you know, changing the rules of the game to benefit who? You know, to benefit democracy and, and we the people in the middle class or to, to benefit the few of the rich and the powerful. And, the you know, the downside is that there was that ruling and, and it's been cited many times. And, and as a result of that, you've got, you know, like the Boston versus Bilotti case and, and, uh, and other cases that Supreme Court cases where, yes, money equals speech and corporations should be able to use money and things like that. The good news is that organizations like the Community Environmental Legal Defense Fund, um, Tom Lindsay's organization out of Pennsylvania, CELDF.org, and I, I would encourage you, in fact, to have Tom on as a guest on your program because he's, he's brilliant. They're doing these democracy schools all over the United States and talking about you know this very issue. And they've helped over 100 communities in Pennsylvania pass actual laws that say, sorry, in our community, a corporation is not a person and does not have the rights of personhood. And, you know, so at the local level, things are changing. And when you look at the history of social movements, whether it was abolition, whether it was civil rights, whether it was suffrage, women's suffrage, um, whether it was, you know, the anti-war movement in the 1960s, whether it was women's rights in the 1970s. When you look at the history of social movements, you discover that they never start from the top down. They don't. They never start in Washington, D.C. They never start with politicians whose names you'd recognize. They always start in, in small communities, not necessarily exclusively rural, you know, sometimes in, in Manhattan as, as well, but they always start with small groups of people getting together and saying, we're mad as hell and we're not going to take it anymore, this is wrong, this has to be changed, and they bring about that change. And that change is happening now in America. Groups of people are getting energized. They're getting, they're getting organized. They're starting to get active. And the challenge of our time is for enough of us to become sufficiently active and sufficiently impassioned about democracy and the middle class, and, and because the two are inter, intertwined, quickly enough that we can bring about those kind of progressive changes that the Republican Roosevelt did in the, 19, the early 1900s and the Democratic Roosevelt did in the 1930s, 1940s, that we can bring about those kind of changes and take this country back to the point where it's not exclusively run by the, by the wealthy and powerful, but it's also run by everybody, by, by we the people, to do that before we slide into fascism, because those are the choices that are facing us right now.
We have William Burns, the publisher of UFO Magazine, on the line. William, can you give us an offer for our readers about getting the magazine? Yes, I sure can. This is UFO Magazine, and I'm Bill Burns, the publisher, and here's an offer for your listeners. We have a special five-issue introductory offer for first-time subscribers, 1995 for your first five issues. Not available anywhere else, but on the Paracast. So, Bill, how do they place the order? People can place orders by going to www.ufomag.com. They can also place orders over the phone at 1-888-UFO-MAGA, or they can write to us at Post Office Box 11013, Marina Del Rey, California, 90295. Bill, give us that contact information again. It is UFO Magazine, Post Office Box 11013, Marina Del Rey, California, 90295. Or they can go directly to www.ufomag.com. And they can also call 1-888-UFO-MAGA, and they can subscribe right over the phone with a credit card. You're in the Paracast with Gene Steinberg and David Biedney. You never know what's going to happen next. Let me stop there and tell our listeners you're in the Paracast with Gene Steinberg and David Vietney. And if you need to contact us, send your messages or a MP3 audio file of up to 90 seconds long to news at theparacast.com, news at theparacast.com. Check out our message boards. And we're talking to prolific author Tom Hartman. And if you go to Tom, T-H-O-M, Hartman, H-A-R-T-M-A-N-N.com, you learn more about him and his radio show. We have a link over at theparacast.com. And right now we're talking about regaining our freedoms before, as you say, we could fall into fascism? Is there a historical parallel to that where it's happened before? Sure. The Great Depression and the economic crises of the, of the, of the late 20s and, and 1930s uh, hit Europe as well as the United States. And in Germany, uh, people turned to, to Nazism. In Italy, they turned to Mussolini, to, to fascism. Mm-hmm. I mean, he invented fascism. Uh, in Spain, Franco, fascist. And people thought that that was a way out. They thought that that was the economic salvation. And in fact, there were a lot of fascists in the United States in the 1920s and 1930s who were saying, hey, you know, this thing was Lenny's doing. It looks like a pretty good idea. We should try this. And similarly, in the United States in the 20s and 30s, there were people looking at the Bolshevik Revolution and the, and the Trotskyites and, the, and you know, the, the early uh, efforts of, of Joe Stalin and whatnot and saying, um, you know, maybe this communist thing is a good idea. Maybe we should try something like that, where the government owns the means of production and supply and, and you know, and, and basically assigns everybody their, their position in society. And these two, these are the two competing forces that Roosevelt was dealing with in 1932. It's hard even imagine today because you know with the hindsight of history we know how how corrupting fascism became although nazism is different from fascism um when we talk about fascism i think it's important to think about italy under mussolini not germany under hitler but uh, we know how corrupting and how corrosive and destructive fascism was and we know how ultimately bankrupt communism was at least the way it was played out on, on a national level by by stalin and by the ussr and so you know we can look back with history and say 
Roosevelt made the right choice. He took us down the middle. You know, he he he, he maintained capitalism and free enterprise, but he regulated it in a way that. People could, you know, you could start a business and you could make money, but you also had to allow your your employees to have some say in that through unionization, and and you also had to, you know, be serving the public good at a certain level. And now that communism has been so thoroughly discredited, I don't think that we have to worry about that being, you know, something that's going to replace our form of government. But fascism is creeping into into our government uh, with an alarming rapidity and the you know open proponents of the modern form of fascism that they really haven't named they call it you know kind of red white and blue all american upton, upton sinclair said you know when fascism comes to the united states uh, it'll wear a clean skin cap and be carrying an apple pie and and be talking about family values mm-hmm. uh, but but fascism is rising in america again and and the the only way to combat it is to awaken people to it. Accountability and responsibility seem to be the key words. People need to demand accountability and also take responsibility for the actions that uh, that they ha- that they engage in. I mean, this comes back to the whole sense of us depleting the Earth's resources. People seem to consume without any uh, any attention paid to the ramifications of that consumption. Yeah. It seems like that is really the great tragedy of our time. It is. It is, and and you know, which brings us all the way back to where we started this conversation, which is, you know, we need a, a fundamental rethinking of how we understand government, how we understand ourselves, how we understand our relationship to the natural world, and how we re- understand our relationship to the institutions that we've created, whether they be governmental or corporate or religious. It gets to be pretty dirty out there if things does straighten out. But the question here I have, which is maybe a corollary of all this, so we have, for example, big government. We have the oil industry, more or less, controls a lot of what's happening in this world. And I wonder if somebody tomorrow invented a system of free energy, you know, anti-gravity, whatever, and would allow us to have aircraft or cars that were powered by a system that didn't require these external accoutrements such as gas or ethanol. Do you think the powers that be would even allow us to know about or allow those things to succeed? Uh, you know, I'm certainly the, the, the fossil fuel industry has done everything it can to prevent government subsidies to emerging technologies that might compete with it you know whether it be you know local things like solar power and wind power and or or even distributed networks wave power and things like that where you know electric or or geothermal power where electricity could be distributed out and and making sure that the subsidies are coming to them i mean they've been manipulating our political process i am skeptical that there are you know unlimited energy supplies out there that you know, are being suppressed, uh, you know, but but even if there were, it, it almost doesn't matter. The problem isn't do we have enough energy. The problem is do we understand the consequences of using energy? Mm-hmm. The, you know, if, if we, I mean, here we are, six billion people. Look at the load we're putting on planet Earth. If we, if somebody were to come along tomorrow and say, okay, here, cold fusion, you know, with a mason jar and a couple of electrodes, you know, 25 cents worth of stuff or $5 worth of stuff, you can power your house forever, and every house can have it. Then we become 7 billion people, and then we become 8 billion people, and then we become 9 billion people. And maybe we're not throwing carbon in the atmosphere anymore, but we're still wiping out species. We're still growing like crazy. And so, 
you know, it's it's not as simple as, gee, where's the next power source going to come from? We have to learn how to how to understand our relationship to the Earth so that the powers that we use are not being used stupidly or destructively. All right. Well, that certainly raises a very important question. But obviously, do the powers that be want us to really conserve? Because if we conserve and use less of the perishable resources, they make less money. Look at what, what was it? Exxon made $10 billion last quarter. Profit. Yeah. Yeah. Of course, Exxon doesn't want us to stop consuming fossil fuels. They don't want us to be more efficient in the United States. You know, it, 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 you're right. It would, it would diminish their crop, their profit. They're not the only power that powers the be out there. I mean, although oddly, the British Petroleum is now the largest manufacturer of solar cells in the world. Um, I don't think that that's going to last forever. But yeah, I mean, you know, that's why. You know, I mean, Jimmy Carter back in 1976, as I recall declared that we were going to, you know, never again, no, in 78, he said we will never again use more power, than, more fossil fuels than we did in 1978. And he, and he initiated a solar bank. He wanted solar power by the year 2000 to provide 20, 20% of all the electricity used in the United States. And he wasn't just, like, pulling these numbers out of his hat. He actually had a system and a plan to actually make it happen, and it would have. And Reagan came into office in, in 1980 and, and just, you know, shut down all of these programs that Carter put into place. Now, you know, the powers that be, when Carter was in power, I mean, certainly they weren't happy about this, you know, the ExxonMobil and whatnot. I mean, this phrase, the powers that be, is kind of a nebulous thing. But let's say the energy industry, which wields tremendous power, they weren't happy about it. But they were also trying to figure out how to make money on it. You know, hey, okay, we'll get into the solar thing. Uh, we'll get into insulation. We'll start making insulation. We'll get into, you know, being more energy efficient and, and uh, because there's money to be made there, too. So mm-hmm. uh, I'm not altogether skeptical about it. I, you know, you, you, in, in Europe, the average European uses one-seventh the energy of the average American. And, and in Western Europe, for, you know, the, the industrialized Europe. And they don't have a lower standard of living than we do, and they're not more miserable than we are. Uh, and their corporations aren't less profitable than ours are. So it is possible. It's just a matter of a, of a society saying, this is how we're going to do it. I mean, in Europe, it came about largely as a result of the fact that they realized, mostly from their experience with World War II, that oil is a finite resource that Europe is not rich in. And therefore, they put this you know, 4 or $5 a gallon tax on, on a gallon of gasoline and uh, that's been there for the better part of 30, 35 years. And it's caused the entire continent to, to change its patterns of consumption. It's a good thing, in my in my opinion. Absolutely. Well, there you have a society that took responsibility for what was going on and decided to make some sacrifice. On well, it wasn't sacrifice. Sac- they they decided they decided to simply re reor- reorient things. I mean, they they don't view well, it as sacrifice. Their their homes are just as warm as ours are. Their cars go just as fast as ours do. They just do it on less fuel. Well, sacrifice in terms of okay, we're not going to be so tight with our money. Basically, I mean, they 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 came up, they took responsibility for the situation and said, hey, if we have to pay a little bit more money in, then we'll do this. Just like in our country, we can't talk about taxes because the minute you bring up that topic, people are like, no, I don't want to pay another dime. And when you compare our tax rate to the tax rates of other countries, we're actually fairly low on the scale. Yeah, we, we have very low taxes, and we also have very few social services. And the consequence exactly. of that is, is that uh, you know we have higher infant mortality rates, and we have lower literacy rates, and 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 you know, we're sliding behind in most indexes of quality of life. Well, even going into that, our healthcare system is a mess. I mean, you have to be in the upper middle class or the wealthy class to even afford healthcare coverage. 
these days. And even then, when you have that coverage, if anything actually goes wrong with you, the insurance companies will fight you tooth and nail. You know, people watch shows like House, you know, this new medical show, and here's this doctor who's saying, well, give him an MRI and give him a CAT scan and check his blood for this and that and the other thing and do these other three tests. In, in the real world, the doctors would be sitting around going, can we get the insurance company to authorize this? Well, that's defensive medicine also. They not only practice medicine on the basis of what the insurance companies will approve, but also on whether they'll be sued if they, uh, yes, no, if they fail to do a test. There's a lot of mythology around that. Okay. The, the, the reason why malpractice insurance rates went up was because the stock market crashed and the insurance companies had invested their money in the stock market. And, and when the stock market crashes, insurance companies raise their rates. It, it, it was not, and, and, and doctors don't practice defensive medicine to avoid being sued. They, they practice good medicine because malpractice is legitimately something that people can sue over. But there's not abuse of the malpractice system. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Hey, this is the beginning of a lot of things we want to talk about. And maybe in the future, we'll have you and your co-author of the book, Ultimate Sacrifice, John and Robert Kennedy, Plan for Coup in Cuba and the Murder of JFK on, because we've covered that in the past. And that's a subject that's always fascinating and a subject that actually, I guess we call it an unsolved mystery even today. Tom Hartman, thanks for joining us on the Paracast. Thanks, guys. It's been a pleasure being here and an honor. And it was a great honor to have you. And we hope to have you on again in the future. Thank you. You're in the Paracast with Gene Steinberg and David Biedney. You never know what's going to happen next. So we see here in what Tom Hartman says how the government with too much power on its hands or maybe too much time on its hands can just about mess up everybody. And certainly if they can screw us up this way, they can keep lots and lots of information from reaching us. And that goes to the larger picture of many of the subjects we've covered here on the Paracast. Well, that's really critical because I think that a number of our listeners are going to hear this show and think, what have these guys done? You're talking about politics. I don't care about politics. I can hear it now on the forums. And and I want to say to those people before they do that, hey, look, we're trying to understand a lot of different stuff here. And in order to get to the bottom of, for example, how the government maintains secrecy on topics that we want information about, there's a mechanism that they've built up in order to do this. And in order to talk about this, we need to understand more of the underlying aspect of how the government has gotten into power and maintained its power. So I think this is personally a valid discussion to have. And for those of our listeners who might disagree with that, remember, maintain an open mind. That's critical to discussing any of the things we talk about on the Paracast. And remember, every time you talk about the government hiding information about secret weapons development, you talk about the government hiding the truth about UFOs, about remote viewing, about all this stuff, or even pulling dirty tricks, or even providing disinformation, which may be part and parcel of a lot of what Project Serpo is, for example. Remember, we're dealing with a political environment that we may or may not be able to control. Supposedly, we elect our representatives, and they... And if they are not doing the things we want them to do, we supposedly, and I hope we still have the power, to throw them out of office and elect people who will do the right thing. Well, that involves population of people who are motivated, compelled to get involved, who are interested in taking responsibility for the situation. And unfortunately, Gene, just like we've talked about on the show, if a UFO landed on the White House lawn tomorrow morning, 
I think people would basically just turn the channel. They would look for something on Tom Cruise's kid. This is a situation where we're in a very dangerous time, even discussing the notion of a conspiracy theory. People immediately stay, they put these blinders out. Ooh, conspiracy theories, oh, this is like nonsense. It's like, no, 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 no. When there is an actual conspiracy, one tries to understand it. That's the deal. People want to try to, you know, the word conspiracy has been made into this this word that is is poisonous. You don't touch it. Just like the word liberal has been turned into a poison word. Go figure. The word that basically means freedom has been turned into a dirty word. That's why, for example, they want to call themselves progressives. They don't want to use the word liberal right. because it's been given the stench. And right. we look at the people who were considered liberal, like John F. Kennedy. Okay, look at John F. Kennedy and where he would stand today. He'd be in a lot of hot water. And, and the thing is that when we're talking about the topics we normally talk about on the show, this is everything that we touch on here is a hot potato. But you know what? I can't turn away from trying to understand the nature of reality because of the ramifications it's had in my professional life. Before I'm a computer graphics expert, I'm a human being, damn it. I want to understand the nature of reality. That, to me, uh, unfortunately, is a much bigger topic than how am I going to feed my fat face tomorrow. I guess that basically means that there's not a hope for me. I come close sometimes, but I've not given up hope. There you go. I got an audience of one here. Okay, cool. Okay, but we'll have more of this, <laughs> more discussions on a lot of subjects, some of which you may not want to hear about, but we think you've got to listen and ponder the implications. Lots more coming up on the Paracast. The Paracast with Gene Steinberg and David Biedney is a production of Making the Impossible Incorporated. Join us next week for a new adventure in the Paracast.